0: You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Tom Wheeler, who is currently at the Brookings Institute as a visiting fellow. He's also the author of a number of books. The latest is called from Gutenberg to Google, The History of Our Future. I've Also got a couple other books, including this one, Leadership Lessons from the Civil War, which I think actually came out of this one, Mr. Lincoln's T-Mails. I don't know what the order that you did it in. It was actually the other way around. Uh, okay. Lincoln's T-Mails followed leadership. And Lincoln's T-Mails, actually, you make reference to the T-Mails in the Gutenberg book, because... You talk about how Lincoln was the first online president. And you also have a new book coming out, which, unfortunately, I didn't get a copy of this yet. But tell me the title of the new book. It's called Techlash,
1: colon, Who Makes the Rules in the New Gilded Age? And as you've seen by the other books... What I love to do is to relate the experiences of history with what's going on today. And it is the story of the industrial barons and the internet
0: barons and how we dealt with the former and how we should deal with the latter. And this book, the most recent book, From Gutenberg to Google, is also it's a book of history, but it also ties it together to the present. And I should mention also that prior to or concurrent with writing your books, You have served in a number of capacities as an executive, as uh, the leader of a bunch of different trade associations, and also as chairman of the Federal Communication Commission. So industry experience, government experience, and I guess authorial slash almost academic experience. You bring a lot to the table. Thanks for joining me, Tom. Greg, it's great to be with you. Thanks for asking me. Okay, so in this book, From Gutenberg to Google, you highlight three I guess we'd call them information revolutions, or I guess you call them more like network evolutions. And I hadn't actually thought of the printing press as launching a network revolution. And I hadn't really thought of the railroad as launching a network revolution, although the telegraph piece makes more sense. So even though you're emphasizing the continuity of these different revolutions, you say that the most recent one, the internet or computation plus telecommunication, this new network revolution is different in a fundamental way in that it's decentralized instead of centralized. So I guess we could talk about the continuity parts or we could talk about the discontinuity parts, but how did you get the idea for this kind of sequence of events as a unified theme? Well, Greg, I'm a network guy. I've been in telecom
1: for most of my life and tended to see things in terms of the structures that connect us are the structures that define us. And so I started going back and thinking about this. Yes, obviously, in the telegraph, telephone, internet, we can make those fit. But I said, well, wait a minute. The original information revolution was the printing press. And it was a network. Because what happened was it was only a handful of years after Gutenberg's discovery or perfection of movable type, that there developed throughout Europe small local print shops Mm -hmm. that basically reprinted what other print shops had done and became a network, much like the early days of computers when you would literally carry floppy disks from one computer to another, what we used to call a sneaker net, right? And here (laughs) this was happening in the 15th century. And I was fascinated by the effects of this. There would not have been the Reformation absent the distribution network of the printing press. And Luther understood the power of this network and took advantage of it. And then there's an example that at roughly the same time, there was this craziness going on in Northern Italy that we've come to call the Renaissance. And it would have remained isolated in Northern Italy or at least taken an awful long time to spread had it not been for the ability of the book and inexpensive printing to spread the ideas and then, of course, to create what networks do, what you and I are doing right now on this network, which is dialogue, which is somebody produces something, it's printed in a book, it goes hundreds of miles away, it get exposed and somebody else says, no, that's not right. And they print something, and it goes back the other direction. And so the ideas that became the scientific method of, hey, here's a concept, now let's challenge it and debate it, began with the printing press and the network that it reflected. And so that was my kind of aha moment. And then the railroad comes in terms of, it was the first high-speed network that everything up until the railroad had been determined by geography and animal stamina. How far could you go before you or your steed collapsed? And and all of a sudden, the iron horse comes along and doesn't have any of those limitations and introduces not only distance, but speed. And it also introduced the centralization of those networks where you come to a central point in order to be switched out to other points, which is the same structure then that we used for the telegraph, the same structure we used for the telephone, and the structure that's been destroyed by the internet. And so my theory was, look at how economic activity, inquiry... Discovery all followed the patterns of the dominant networks of their era, from distributed to centralized by printing, to centralized by railroads, to centralized by telegraph and telephone, to distributed
0: again in the new Internet economy. Well, I was reading the section about the origins of the printing press, there were so many similarities between what was happening then and how people responded to it and what's happening today, right, or in the last 20 years. You always hear people talk about how more data has been created in the last 12 months than was created in the entire human history up till the year 2000. But the same thing was true then. I mean, they had more documents or manuscripts created in the 50 years after the printing press than you saw in the previous thousand years and this led to a lot of fear and resistance and pushback and i love how you referenced there was, there was this one book what was it in defense of the scribe or something in praise of scribes and it kind of reminded me about how people would say oh man the, everything's boiled down to 106 40 characters in twitter and it seems like they were making the same case back then for doing it the old-fashioned way
1: Yeah, but the great thing was the book, In Praise of Scribes, talks about how important it is, the great contributions that these monks sitting on those benches laboring away to
0: copy books. And what'd the author do? He had it printed. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. You want to bemoan the impacts of Twitter on Twitter, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, it was a classic example. Right. And then, so... When you're talking about this, the way information got disseminated post-printing press, you talk about these centralized hubs and then these sort of auxiliary hubs. So information would be generated someplace and then it would, I guess it would get transported physically to some other remote manufacturing facility where it would then start repopulating that locality. Is that sort of how you think about it? Yeah, it's
1: actually, they were decentralized hubs. Okay, That you started out with an environment where all of the information creation was highly distributed and seldom knew of each other. Then along comes the printing press, which allows for a centralization of activity, but does it on a decentralized basis, if you will, so that you've got this in Heidelberg, you've got this in Hamburg, you've got this in Paris, where they're all doing their printing activities, and then along comes the railroad, which totally centralizes everything because you have to bring it to a point and switch it out, which becomes the model until the internet. Mm -hmm. Now, when
0: you talk about the railroads, because you talk about the railroads and the telegraph as sort of complementary innovations, but they didn't happen simultaneously, right? So what I found fascinating was how you described the problem that the railroads had, particularly the single-track railroads, and how they, in order to avoid collisions... They really had to operate at relatively low capacity on these networks, right?
1: Yeah, they had to operate at low capacity and cut back their speed. So rule number one, since you're going, let's just say, east and west on an east-west line, there's a train going east and a train going west on the same track. The way they would handle things is they would have sightings so that one would pull over and the other would pass. But Murphy's Law, of course, said, oh, no— There were sheep on the track or whatever that slowed one of them down and they couldn't get there. And the wonderful story of this is a guy by the name of Charles Minot, who was a supervisor uh, on the Erie Railroad in the 1850s. I guess today we would say that he was driven. He was a push, 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 push kind of a guy. And he was on one of the Erie trains and he passed a station where the other train was supposed to be waiting for them, the other train going the other direction, and it it wasn't there. And so the engineer says, well, I'm going to stop and wait. And Minot says, no, 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 we got to move on, we got to push. And the engineer says, "Uh uh-uh, man, this is Casey Jones and the two trains colliding. And so Minot goes into the station because the railroads had been smart enough to say that they would give the rights away along the track to string the cable. So he goes into the station, and he telegraphs the next station. And he says, has the eastbound passed you yet? And they respond, no. He says, well, hold it up. And he goes back and tells the engineer, okay, we can go on to the next station. And the engineer says, no way, buddy. (laughs) I'm not doing this. Because I know what's going to happen, and I'm not going to trust sparks on a wire to determine what happens to my train and my life. And so Minot said to him, okay, I'll drive the train. So he gets in the cab, and the engineer goes to the last row in the last car of the train. He is so convinced that they're heading into another train going the opposite direction. They get to the next station, nothing happens. My nut goes in, he telegraphs the next station, the train has it left there. He gives them the same instruction. And that was the first implementation of how the telegraph then got used to schedule the railroad. And the point here is that you had the railroad, which I refer to in From Gutenberg to Google as the first high speed network and you then had to manage it by an even higher speed network. And that was the telegraph. And that then introduced the concept and the ability to manage things from afar, which if the railroad, the centralization of the railroad allowed the low-cost transportation of high-volume, high-weight, low-value products like coal or corn to be transported for great distances, which they weren't able to economically before, and that allowed for mass production. And then the telegraph allowed for... The coordination of supply and demand and ultimately the coordination of multiple production facilities so that you have the first corporate entities, not just single operations but you have multiple activities owned by one corporate entity managed from afar because of the telegraph.
0: I think it was Alfred Chandler who said that it was the telegraph that enabled the modern corporation, right? So you don't have to rely entirely on local decision-making based on local signals, but rather you can aggregate all that information to a central command center and then dispatch orders. He talks about GM and DuPont and the railroads, but really it was the U.S., Military that seems to be the first organization that really began to leverage these these, these technologies, right?
1: Yeah, Greg. I mean, it's a great point. So, building the railroad, let alone running the railroad, were the greatest management feats ever undertaken in scope and scale at that point in time. Imagine the challenge of building a railroad. All of The men you have to coordinate, all of the logistics and material that you've got to make sure come to the right place at the right time, and all of this sort of thing. And so the early railroad pioneers looked around and said, gee, who has any experience in logistics and masses of men? Oh, it's the army. And so they started hiring Army officers. And I think I say in the book that there were about 120 West Point graduates that ended up being officials in American railroads and brought along with them, obviously, men who had served with them and also thought the same way. But the thing that I find fascinating is... The structure that got put in place was the same kind of structure that the military had. I get a big kick out of the fact that even today, we talk about, well, there's this division or that division of a corporation. Where did the term division come from? It was brought by these West Pointers and first put in place in building and running the railroads
0: and became a— corporate staple. Right. But McClellan was a railroad executive who was the first commander of Union forces during the Civil War. And, and it seems as if he did not take full advantage of the technology. And perhaps it's because in the railroad business, speed was not of the essence. Whereas in the military context, being able to respond very quickly is critical. And I think in your book, that's a point that you make repeatedly in leadership lessons. And I guess Running a we business. Could, we could talk about George McClellan forever. Yeah. So, I mean, there are two things about
1: McClellan. Yes, you're right. He was a, became a railroad executive. But there was something else. What made McClellan was the telegraph. Mm-hmm. And As a young captain, recent graduate from West Point, he was sent by the U.S. Army to observe the Crimean War. And he saw there... The telegraph being used for the first time. It was basically to send information back. Here's what's been going on. It wasn't any great logistic operation, but it was being used. And he's thinking away, this is something really interesting. So when he finally ends up well, you said he was the first general of the Union Army. actually, he wasn't. His claim to fame was in, in early in the Civil War, in western Virginia, the area now is West Virginia. But in Western Virginia, he fought with a Confederate commander by the name of Robert E. Lee. Both of them were kind of, they were generals, they had their own forces and responsibilities, but were kind of off the beaten path, which was the path between Washington and Richmond. And McClellan brought the telegraph with him as he advanced, he was famous for writing letters to his wife, which were preserved, which are amazing letters. I mean, this is a man of monumental ego and narcissism. But he in one of his letters, he says, "For the first time in history, a telegraph has advanced with an army, and he would use that not only to communicate back to his command, but also, The members of the press Hmm. who were following him, hey, if you guys would like to use the (laughs) telegraph to send your dispatches, go ahead, be my guest. And so George McClellan in a few small battles, but battles that he won in Western Virginia became a national figure. Because the reporters traveling mm. with him used the Telegraph to tell
0: his story. I like Julius Caesar sent back his Gallic War memos back to Rome, boosting his case.
1: Exactly, but it took a few days for weeks for uh-huh. Caesar's memos to come back. And this was almost real-time reporting, and it made McClellan a giant. And so when Lincoln is looking around after First Manassas, what should I be doing? And McClellan is the obvious first choice. And when McClellan comes to Washington, he centralizes all of the telegraph lines in his office. Not the War Department, not the White House, but his office. And he actually gives instructions to his aide, Thomas Eckert, that he is not to share any information that comes in over the telegraph with the President of the United States unless McClellan personally approves it. And the classic example of that was after the Battle of Ball's Bluff in October of 61, which was another Union defeat at which Lincoln's Best friend was killed, Edward Baker. Lincoln had named his son, uh, who died in Springfield, Edward Baker Lincoln. And it was a loss for the union at Balls Bluff. It was a loss, terrible personal loss for Lincoln of his best friend. McClellan was meeting with Lincoln at the White House, and an aide comes in and hands him the message, the telegram. And McClellan reads it, folds it up, and puts it in his pocket. Mm. It never says to the president of the United States, who is sitting right there across from him, that these two tragedies have happened. And then he leaves. And Lincoln, who was famous for what we would today call management by walking mm. around, wandered over to McClellan's headquarters, which was were on the other side of Lafayette Square, across from the White House. Later that day. And Eckert, who was McClellan's aide and had been instructed not to share anything without permission, saw Lincoln coming and he took the telegram and he hid it under his blotter. And Lincoln comes and says, Well, Eckert, anything new? To which Eckert says, There's nothing new in the file, sir. And McClellan was not in his office. And Lincoln wanders into his office and he sees there on McClellan's desk the document that McClellan would not share with him when it was face to face, talking about the loss of the battle and the loss of his best friend. And he comes out and he confronts Eckert and he says, I asked you if there was anything new. Look at this. And Eckert replies, Sir. I responded, there is nothing new in the file. And Eckert pulls out a copy from under his blotter and says, I put my copy under here because I've been instructed not to share this with you. And this was a classic example of Lincoln learning that he who controls the conduit controls the content. Which is something very true today. And it was shortly thereafter that the U.S. Military Telegraph Corps was created, which may have had military in its name, but did not report to any military officer. It reported to the Secretary of War, who reported to the President of the United States, and all the wires were moved into the Secretary of War's. Office, except for those that were absolutely a necessity for McClellan. And that became the hub of
0: activity. Yeah, I mean, it's such a classic story about organizational politics, but it also speaks to Lincoln's managerial style and real excellence. And you talk a bit in the book about Mr. Lincoln's T-mails and about how he would, well, not simply by walking around, but also by establishing lines of communication with the people out in the field, right? I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that, because that seems to be a way of, I don't know, getting around the hub-and-spoke uh, approach to information gathering. Yep. Well, the reason that I wrote Mr. Lincoln's
1: emails mails is that the telegrams, roughly a thousand telegrams that he sent during his presidency, have always been footnote fodder and various stories about the Civil War. But I felt they told a story and how Lincoln used them told a story. And what was fascinating was that here was a man who had a new technology that had never been used this way. And he had to figure out how to use it. And he had to figure that out. There wasn't exactly a textbook or Professor LeBlanc's class that he could go sit in. There were no YouTube videos. And he had to figure it out in the middle of a civil war. And I talk in the book about how he went through three phases. And the first phase, it really, he didn't pay that much attention. First phase didn't pay much attention. In the second phase, he used it as a way of projecting his voice. You will do this, you will do that. And then he realized that the real secret of the telegraph was what it revealed was going on in the field. And so he would go over to the telegraph office, which was in the War Department, which was next door to the White House. He spent more time there than any other place other than the White House uh, itself. And he would go through and he would read the flimsies, the copies of the telegrams that had come in from the field to understand what was going on. And that gave him something that no political leader had ever had before. And that was a window into what was going on in his general's tents. I mean, Napoleon went with his troops because the leader had to be there to see what was going on. Henry was at Agincourt because the leader had to be there. And Lincoln was the first political leader— who was able to manage from afar because this technology gave him insight not only into what's going on in the tents, but also what's going on in the heads of his commanders. And he would engage with them. Even though they hadn't directly addressed him, he would in essence say, hey, I see that you said this in this telegram. Listen, here are my thoughts. And they are some great classic leadership Lessons. I mean, my favorite is that when Grant was down outside of Petersburg in 64 and 65 and was worried about what was going on with the draft riots and were they going to be taking troops away from him. And he sent a letter to Halleck, who was then the Army Chief of Staff, an email to him or a text. (laughs) Let me get this straight. A telegram to him. And he said, hey, boss, how am I doing? And Lincoln saw this. And Lincoln picks up a pen and he jots off a line that says, hold on with a bulldog grip and chew and choke as much as possible. And when Grant Grant was at a city point and he gets this telegram, and his telegraph operator hands it, transcribe it and hands it to him. And he looks at the people in the room and he says something to the effect, that man has more courage than any of those around him. And Lincoln used the telegraph to convey that kind of decisiveness, that kind of courage, that kind of leadership. And so the conclusion that I reach in Mr. Lincoln's T-Mails is that Abraham Lincoln, thereby invented the modern electronic leadership paradigm, which is listen, 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 and respond
0: when necessary. And I think the key insight behind the telegraph is that it separates, as you say, separates information from physical delivery. So you no longer have to have a messenger traveling on foot or horse, and that's really the key discontinuity that leads us into the digital era. Yes. Now, this Morse seems like an interesting character, right? And I remember reading about him when I was a kid. I remember when I was in third grade, there was a wall of about a thousand biographies, these short biographies of famous people, and he was one of them. And when I was reminded yep. that he was an art professor, that I totally had yep. forgotten that small detail. Like, how does an art professor become one of the most important technological innovators of our of modern times. By theft. Right. I mean, when you get right down to it, everybody gives Morris credit for inventing the telegraph.
1: But really, and this was in part because the telegraph didn't mm-hmm. exist. And again, how you understand what everybody else is doing didn't mm-hmm. exist. But the challenge, there are two things that Morris gets credit for that were not, kids including morse code which is the second one we'll talk about in a second the first was challenge of telegraphy is the physics of sending an electronic pulse down a wire what happens is that it attenuates yeah. the friction means it gets weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker, weaker. and so Yeah, you could have telegraphs going over short distances or things like this, but you never, but you couldn't have the long distance that was necessary. And Morris met with a guy by the name of Joseph Henry. Joseph Henry ended up, back to Abraham Lincoln, ended up being like Lincoln's scientific advisor. He was the first secretary of the Smithsonian Institution during the war. He was Lincoln's scientific advisor. And Henry had developed a repeater, what we would call today an amplifier, where the signal would get down to just as weak as it could still be read, and he would put another battery there and another unit so that it would click the key, if you will, that would be powered by a new battery and then sent on. And... Henry was one of these guys who felt that you didn't patent things because you were doing this for the good of science and the good of mankind.
0: Well, that didn't slow Morris
1: down, okay? So he swipes Henry's idea, and it's his huge breakthrough that he patents,
0: claims for his own, etc. Morris is kind of like a 19th century Steve Jobs, right? <laughs> because he's another artist who's pretty good at stealing some ideas that you know originated elsewhere. That came out of the park and yeah. elsewhere, yes. But the other thing that he did was he hid this assistant by the
1: name of Alfred Vale. Morris's idea. So Morris swipes Henry's idea and solves the long distance problem. But Morris's concept was that he would send a number. Yeah. Which you would then look up in a dictionary, <laughs> and you'd go number 367. Yeah. Oh, that's Wednesday. Uh-huh. And it was incredibly cumbersome of a process. And his assistant, Alfred Vale, kept noticing that you could hear the taps and figure out what was going on. And is there a way that you can break the message down into its smallest units mm-hmm rather than saying wednesday but w e d okay and how do you do that and so he went to a print shop back to gutenberg he went to a print shop and literally went through the printers type chest and counted the number of copies of each individual letter that the printer was using figuring that, well, the easiest signal needs to be the one that the printer uses the most. That happens to be the letter E. And so E is one dot. And he goes on from there. As the letters become less frequent, the code becomes more complex. And he brings this back to Morris, and this becomes Morris code. No, it's not morris code it's just another thing that he ripped off but it's one of the wonderful things about history and you're right drawing the analogies to today that it's not always the person whose name gets on the discovery that actually is the key to
0: why it happened and the stories like that are fascinating well there's another story you have of this guy named atanasoff who i had never heard of right and he also was an originator Now, I went to University of Pennsylvania, so the ENIAC is, you know, that's the celebrated birth of the modern computer. And I had no idea that that actually this was built on something which happened in Ames, Iowa. Ames, Iowa. Out of all
1: places. Careful now, you're talking, my wife went to the university, or went to Iowa State University. I have been to the physics lab where Atanasoff built the first computer. So the fascinating thing was that John Vincent Atanasoff was a physics professor at Iowa State University, he was playing around with this ideas of how do you harness electronics digitally because computing had been done still on an analog basis and electronic tubes, which were on, off, on, off. Oh my goodness, that's like the telegraph. Right. Dot, dash. And can you take that on, off capability in an electronic tube and use it for digital calculations. And one night, Tanisoff went back to his office on campus after dinner at home, and he was playing with this idea, and he couldn't get anywhere, and he had just bought a new car. And like so many of us, we get in the car, and different parts of our brain start working as we're driving along, right? And so he goes out and he starts driving east. And he turns on, for those of you who listen to this who are from Ames, he turned left onto Lincoln Highway and started driving east towards Illinois. And he crossed the river. And the interesting thing about crossing the river to get from Iowa into Illinois is that Iowa was dry and Illinois wasn't. And so Tanasoff pulls in to the first roadhouse across the river in Illinois, pulls up in a corner, orders a drink, and sits there and sketches out his idea on a cocktail napkin. I mean, it's like fiction. He goes back and he builds what was called the ABC, the Tanasoff Barry, because his graduate assistant was named Barry Computer. And it was the first digital electronic computer. And it was a gigantic thing in the basement of the physics hall at Iowa State University. And he goes to a conference of other professors. He meets a guy by the name of Mockley from your alma mater. And they're talking about this. And Mockley, wow, that's really interesting. And Mockley, as you indicated, was busy with federal government money trying to build something at the University of Pennsylvania. And Mockley says, gee, can I come out and visit? And you got to stop and think. This was the early 40s, right? And a car trip from Philadelphia to Ames, Iowa was a major undertaking, And Mockley gets in his car and he drives over there and Atanasoff, being this wonderful Midwestern innocent, puts him up in his house, gives him a bed, gives him food, he eats with his family, and Mockley walks out with everything that Atanasoff has done, turns around, does it himself, gets the credit for it, it ends up becoming ENIAC, which becomes UNIVAC, and and Atanasoff then gets called into the war effort, he works in the Navy Department. He's doing all kinds of important things. But the idea just peters away, and Mockley is off doing his self-promotion on this. Until in the 1960s, there was the successor, Univac, eventually became Sperry Rand, and they were demanding royalties from everybody who would build an electronic computer. And finally, one of the companies sued them and said, no, you don't have the rights to this. It's
0: Honeywell, right? Honeywell.
1: And the trial goes, it happens in Minnesota, and Atanasoff testifies, and they produce all these documents that shows that, no, Mockley didn't invent this. The court rules that it was John Vincent Atanasoff who was the father of the modern digital electronic computer, and that ruling happened the same day as Nixon's Saturday Night Massacre. And so once again, Denisov was wiped away by the events of the day that there should have been headlines saying, father of the computer discovered. And unfortunately, he doesn't get any credit. And so one of the things that I really enjoyed doing was telling that story and trying to get people like you than to see this wonderful story and repeat it like you just did.
0: Now, before we get to the current, it seems like there's a trend that whenever there's any kind of technological evolution, it's going to disrupt vested interests, right? There's going to be folks who are going to be upset by this innovation. And they're also ones yes. that probably were in a position to innovate themselves, but didn't really have the incentives to innovate. And so you talk about the conflict between Western Union and Bell, which became AT&T, and how Western Union could very well have been the one that developed all the telephone networks, but they didn't. And then later you talk about how Bell Labs and AT&T, they could have been the ones that really spearheaded the internet, but they didn't, and they didn't see any real benefit to this. So, I mean, is there something about innovation where innovation has to come from new players? Yes, absolutely. Because you innovate.
1: I mean, we're having this debate right now. There is a contingent in national policy saying that we need to make sure that our dominant digital platforms, Google, Facebook, Amazon, etc remain dominant because they're the ones who were doing the great breakthroughs in terms th- that are going to allow us to keep pace with all of the... Managed development that's coming out of China, and I think history teaches just the opposite lesson. And I have the most respect for these companies: Google, Facebook, Amazon, etc. But their fiduciary responsibility is to invest money that will do things to make more money for their shareholders, not to go out on wild and crazy things that will invest that that might have a thing. I mean. We're seeing this with ChatGPT right now and OpenAI. That didn't come out of these companies. And the fiduciary responsibility is to do things that will return for their shareholders. And that means that even though something is an important development, you sit on it. Let me tell you two quick stories in that regard. I was blessed in my life, and blessed is the word, to know Paul Barron who was the father of packet switching and to learn from Paul Barron, the rudiments of digital concepts. I mean, what a blessing. And Paul told me one night about when he took the idea to AT&T. Mm-hmm. And and 1st of all, they didn't understand what he was talking about because he was talking about a constant on and off where his telephone networks were always on. They brought somebody over from Bell Labs who understood digital concepts as kind of a translator. Paul said, I might as well have been speaking Swahili to them. And the light bulb goes off and AT&T says, whoa, this is a threat to our business. The Defense Department came in and said, we will pay you to build this digital network. And AT&T goes, no way. We're not going to build something that could end up competing with us. Okay, first story. Second story. There was a man at Bell Labs, which probably had more IQ per square foot than any other place on the planet owned by AT&T. And he developed a thing called magnetic tape. And we go, gee, magnetic tape, my God, we've, that's been around. Answering machine, you can have an answering machine. (laughs) Yeah, this is the point. So he shows it to his bosses at AT AT&T. Here's what we can do. We can have a device that will answer your phone when you're not there and you can leave a message. And the guys at at and go, no way, no. That's going to cut down on telephone usage. People won't make as many calls to keep calling back. And they killed it. And as you know, magnetic tape was not just for answering machines and it became key to computing, storage, and all of this sort of thing. But the reality is that the incentive is to hoard new ideas to protect mm-hmm. against encroachment in the business that is producing your bottom line. These And that's, it's human nature, it's basic economics, and it's why we have to make sure that there is always an entrepreneurial initiative that is encouraged and
0: funded to push the edges of the envelope because it won't come from the establishment. You've been in a position as a regulator. Regulators, their main constituents are incumbents, right? They're the folks that already exist. And they can't really solicit information from the companies that don't exist. So how can regulators avoid being just captured by the incumbents, by the vested interests? I mean, if they're really the only folks that they have an opportunity to speak with and listen to, how can regulators stay ahead and Maintain the environment, which will allow for continuous disruption. Years ago, I learned to fly.
1: And my flying instructor kept telling me, Tom, get your head out of the cockpit, because you want to just look at the dials. And you better be aware of the environment around you. And regulators need to get their head out of the cockpit. And the trap that you fall into, that is easy to fall into, is to rely on the incumbents, And those that they fund, because the current technique is that the incumbents fund, quote, independent groups to keep feeding information into the regulators and into the public media and into Congress. And you've got to get your head out of the cockpit and have an understanding of what's going on or at least be seeking what is going on because the source of information, the principal source of information, should not be the body or the group that will be the beneficiary or be
0: affected by the policy decision that you make. Now, you've run, uh, I think, two of those groups, right? So I think Obama said you were the Bo Jackson of telecoms, I guess, because you were running the Cable Trade Association and the Wireless. Now, those two groups don't always see eye to eye, right? So, I mean, how can one be comfortable running different organizations? And while you're in that role, You have a front row seat to the kind of lobbying that industries can do to slow things down, right? Right.
1: So I was asked this question during my confirmation hearing by a member of the Senate who said to me, Mr. Wheeler, you have represented these industries that you are now going to be charged with regulating. How do you reconcile that? And I said, Senator, I hope that when I was representing the cable industry and the wireless industry, that I was the best possible representative that they could have for their issues but if confirmed my clients are not going to be the companies Mm -hmm. they're going to be the people it's going to be the people of the united states and i want to be the best possible advocate for them and i really felt that and i tried to follow through on that which meant that you looked elsewhere for
0: information not just from those who you are regulating So we talked about the continuities, but there really is a discontinuity, right, with this third network revolution. And of course, it's about the way the network is architected, and you alluded to that with ARPANET and the internet. But it's not just the network is decentralized, but it's also that these networks don't simply communicate information, but they generate information in the process. So, I mean, what is new? What can we not learn from the previous revolutions. Well, let's put it the other way. What can we learn? I think that the big takeaway of From
1: Gutenberg to Google is that those who succeeded were those who embraced rather than fought the new Mm -hmm. technology. And I tell stories on both sides of all three. And the ones who fought were never the ones who won. The other is that I think that our challenge today, let's just take the issue of misinformation. Lies, hate, and misinformation getting spread by the internet. And companies like Google, YouTube, Facebook, Meta, and others making billions of dollars profiting off of the spread of lies, hate, and misinformation. I know that you have had my Brookings colleague, Jonathan Rauch, on here talking about his book, The Democracy of Knowledge. And he tells a wonderful story in that book that I think is applicable today that I replay in my forthcoming book, Tech Clash, in which he talks about we had a period that was in which the journalism was so bad that we actually named the period Yellow Journalism where guys like Pulitzer and Hearst would make up stories just to sell papers. It's kind of like, all right, right, what we're seeing right now. How did that come to an end? It came to an end because in 1922, newspaper editors working for these guys formed the American Society of Newspaper Editors. And in 1923, they came up with a Code of Ethics, for newspaper business, and the first item in the code ethics was truth. And that was the beginning of the downfall of yellow journalism. Now, the difference here was that these were men, and they were men, these were men of conscience. They were biting the hand that fed them, literally, recognizing their responsibility as the purveyors of information to the American people. Algorithms don't have consciences, and the people who write the algorithms can't track what they're doing either. And so what we need to do and what TechLash, who makes the rules for the new Gilded Age, talks about is how do we come up with a new approach to code, to a kind of code that says this is what you do to be responsible a standard that people can be held to. And I think that there are ways that protect the First Amendment and allow for enforcement of the code. And that's the kind of thinking that we need to be bringing to today's problems. And so, to your point, we are definitely informed by the experiences of history, if we can go and find those lessons, draw the analogies, and it's not, as, as I say in the book, it's not a cake mix. It's not you add a little to this and add some water to that, and suddenly you've got an angel food cake. It's not that you copy it directly, but you say, ah, we're not the first people to have ever seen this. Napoleon used to tell, i write about this in the first book, Leadership Lessons from the Civil War. Napoleon used to tell his generals, study the campaigns of the past. It wasn't so that you will do the same thing. It was that so you internalize those experiences. So when your leadership moment comes, you can say, aha, I've got to approach. And I think that's what's lacking right now in our discussion of what has
0: been created by this third network revolution. Now, I think the Wall Street Journal did a survey a while back and asked people, in order to become more innovative, what's the one topic you should study? And the number one answer was history. I love referencing that as an historian, but it was also, I think, very surprising to people who are not historians. When we teach business, we use the case method, and the case method is really an historical approach. And so I've always been intrigued by executives that tell me they read a lot of history. If you were to advise executives to better prepare for the future, would you tell them to read more history? And if so, what kind of history? You read a lot of military history. Is military history particularly useful as for it to be a senior leader?
1: You have really hit on a hot button here, Professor. I was a business major in college. I went to graduate school in business and I did not learn arts and letters and it was my loss. And so philosophy, history, definitely you need to understand those and they contribute to your understanding of Today, you asked a question about military history. What fascinates me about military history is the leadership moment when you have a clear-cut decision, you have clear-cut winners and losers, and it happens in the public eye. So you can learn from it. So I think that philosophy and history are what I wished I had spent my misspent (laughs) years. learning about.
0: Well, Tom, it's been great chatting with you. We barely scratched the surface. One of the topics that I really found enjoyable in the book is when you described the various innovations that were necessary before the printing press could get off the ground. I did not realize how complicated it was. And I was talking to an artist friend of mine yesterday about how you needed to have a special type of ink even in order for it to work. So lots of fun facts and interesting insight in all of these books, most recently from Gutenberg to Google, and of course, the new book which is called Tech-lash. TechLash. Colon, who makes the rules in the new Gilded Age? Thanks so much, Tom. Hope to talk to you again soon, perhaps in person.
1: Greg, thanks a lot. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at com.